Thank you, Anne, and good morning, everybody. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our loving Father, as we um, come to this hard word, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our ears, that we would be eager to hear what you, our Lord God Almighty, have to say, that we might embrace it, respond to it, and know your blessing by responding to the truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The best-known verse in Scripture is, I think, clearly John 3.16. That's the one that says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, I suspect that most of you here will have heard that verse. Most of you actually could recite that. Uh, it's a verse that countless Christians have held tightly onto as a verse of hope and as assurance in the face of our own sin. You know, so our consciences um, of many of our failings can cause us to ask ourselves, could God really forgive me? Have you ever asked that? And, and then we look at this verse and we're reminded of something. We're reminded that, that God is not eagerly vengeful. He's not ready to drop the axe at the very first opportunity. No, because we're reminded here that he so loved the world that has sinned against him that he would send Jesus so that we would not perish. And when we feel the burden of our guilt, we look to this verse and we're reminded that this loving God does not require us to atone by labouring to achieve some level of spiritual achievement and purity that few, if any of us, could reach in order to make up for all of that wrong that we've done. But no, we, we need to trust. We need to trust in the perfect Saviour who achieved perfection for us and died in our place. That's what John 3.16 reminds us. Now, does the message of John 3.16 connect with you? Does it give your heart hope? Does it make you look to the God who has loved you so much and love him in return? Well, it might surprise you to hear that for some, the message at the heart of John 3.16 is deeply offensive. It's repulsive to them. Um, I was in Brisbane during the school holidays while I was away as at my, um, my niece's wedding and, and I was chatting to a lady who goes to my brother's church up there and um, she believes what most of us here believe and, and she was doing some further study so that she might be ordained in Brisbane and her lecturer said to her face, your God is a monster. Your God is a monster. A God who would judge people's sin, a God who would punish his innocent son in our place, is not loving at all, far from it. See, I think it comes down to how fair you think that phrase is, will not perish but. Because it's a reminder that whoever doesn't believe in Jesus will perish. Later in John 3, 3, in John 3, 36, it puts it plainly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains upon them. 
God's wrath remains upon them. Does God have a right to expect obedience from us? Does he have a right to be angry at our sin? Does God have a right to then punish that? Is our sin serious enough to provoke that kind of response from God? Your answer to those questions will go a long way to determining whether you love the gospel of Jesus Christ or whether you're offended by it. Well, last week we began a new series in the book of Jeremiah, which we've entitled The Hard Word. Well, today that hard word truly begins because Jeremiah is called to confront Judah with the truth of their rebellion against God and testify that there are consequences coming. Chapter 7 begins with a warning. Now, by the way, if, you would, uh, if it would help to have a transcript in front of you, just place your hand up. There is um, there's some just behind the, the thing that you get, your cleany handy stuff. Anyway, whatever the word is for that. What, I don't know what it is. Anyway, it's up the back there, and there's also some outlines near the door. So chapter 7 begins with a warning. Look at verses 1 and 2 there. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So I want you to picture this. Um, The Lord calls Jeremiah to stand where everybody is funneling through to get into the temple and then walking through when they're leaving the temple. He's called to give a sermon where everyone's walking past and everyone's walking out. So Jeremiah's sermon would be ringing their ears when they go into worship. His sermon was to be ringing in their ears and staying with them when they went back to their houses. And this sermon is an intervention. Right Now, um, you may have heard of interventions. They started springing up, as far as I can remember, as a thing back in the 90s. Um, Interventions are a kind of surprise party for those who are struggling with some kind of addiction that they're in denial about. The surprise comes because their friends and their family and other people who love them would be gathered in a room which the person would be led into on some pretext, like you would in a surprise party, but then they would then see everyone who loves them confronting them with their problem. It's kind of a way of showing tough love. Here are all the people that care about you standing together and they're cutting through the politeness to say what needs to be said. This is what you're doing. This is why it's damaging and this is why it has to change. Maybe then, maybe confronted with that, it takes that to make a person listen. Well, this is a kind of intervention but it's in reverse. Instead of the one loved being confronted by the many... This time it's the many who are loved being confronted by the one, pleading with them to turn from their self-destructive path. And the intervention begins with a warning that they've got to change. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, literally make them good, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
And so the the sermon's got two main points. The first one is that the people of Judah, the ones who are walking through those gates on the claiming to be going there to worship the Lord, have got some habits and have got some practices that urgently need correcting. And the second point is that they are not to trust in deceptive words that might mislead them and give them false confidence. But I want you to notice who is the one who is addressing them. This intervention is not being led by Jeremiah, but by God, the Lord Almighty. Now remember, when you read the Lord Almighty in the English, it's more than saying the Lord who is heaps strong. It's literally the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies is what that means. So the Lord that you don't mess with, the God of Israel has a thinly veiled warning to give them. Reform, says the Lord of armies, and I will let you live in this place. The land that he's given them and the temple that sits right in the middle of it where he dwells in their midst. Now, the flip side of that is obvious, isn't it? Fail to reform and I will not let you live in this place. Why? What are they doing wrong? They're coming in to worship him. What's wrong with them? Verse 5, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Now, you get that. If changing their ways means acting with justice and not oppressing the weak, and the poor, and not shedding innocent blood, and not following other gods to their own harm, then it's clear what they're doing right now, isn't it? Because to do the opposite is changing their ways. Their remaining in the land God has given them is contingent upon them repenting of this godlessness and this wickedness. They mustn't continue to think that they can live in God's land and enjoy his presence while betraying him. And while betraying each other, expecting no consequences from that. What world are they living in? The Lord's command through Jeremiah is inherently reasonable, isn't it? He's not calling upon them to scale some unassailable moral heights here. Can you just not be jerks with one another and betray me? That's reasonable. And what's more, he's actually giving them a clear warning and he's reassuring them of his graciousness at the same time. You notice that the whole thing is even put in the positive. If you reform, then I will. He's reassuring them that if they repent, they will receive his grace. See, love is at the heart of the intervention. But resolve is as well, because without repentance, God will act. But there's a second warning there too, remember? That that warning about trusting in deceptive words. Those deceptive words are this repeated slogan, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What is going on here and why is saying the temple of the Lord deceptive? 
Well, it's because they're taking for granted God's promises. They're treating his grace like it's cheap. The temple, the one that they're walking into and out of, even while Jeremiah's preaching to them, is where the God that made the universe caused his name to dwell out of all the places in all the nations of the world. And he has promised to be with them and to be their God. But Judah has developed this dangerous complacency. You see, the temple has stood there for about 350 years. And even just a century earlier, the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem with an army of hundreds of thousands of men. They had terrorised every nation that they had come across. They made arrogant boasts about Israel's God. And the Lord sent a plague through their forces. And they retreated back home. Jerusalem left safe. So you can see why they're going, (laughs) this thing here, as if we are safe. Safer than the Bank of England, right? Because the Lord's temple is right here. But the Lord is saying, when you keep chanting to one another this slogan, you're kidding yourselves. And this is why. And you'll see the warning ratchet up a notch or two. Look at verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Well, there's commandments 6 through 9 blown out of the park. Will you burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? Well, there's commandments 1 and 2. And then come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all of these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers for you? I have been watching, declares the Lord. So sure, the temple of the Lord is a safe place to be when your enemies are outside it. But what if the one you made your enemy is inside it? The very God whose temple it is. They are like a gang of bandits seeking safety in their secret hideout, only for that hideout to be in full view of the one that they're trying to hide from. They're playing a deadly game, you see, of self-deception. And we hear those ominous words, but I have been watching. And you know what Judas should have learned from their past and what happened to their former countrymen, the northern kingdom of Israel. So the Lord, through Jeremiah, gives them a bit of a history lesson. If you think you're safe, go check out Shiloh and see what you see. Verse 12, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. Now, you've got to understand that language there, Israel is talking about the northern kingdom as distinct from the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Before the temple was built in Jerusalem, for many years, the tabernacle at Shiloh was where Israel went to worship. And Shiloh was just across the border in the region of Ephraim in what was the northern kingdom. And that was a kingdom that God sent the Assyrians, the same ones that camped around the temple, to destroy in 722 BC as punishment for Israel's wickedness for doing exactly the kinds of things that Judah's doing now. And Jeremiah says, you want to know what happens if you persist with this? Go there and have a look. And notice how you can't see anything because it's been wiped off the face of the earth. Verse 13, 
But while you were doing all of these things, declared the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you didn't listen. I called you. You didn't answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in. The place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Saying you, you become complacent and ignored warning after warning. What do you want? What do you expect? Don't deceive yourselves with this temple of the Lord talk like it's a totem. I will act. Now, here's the thing about interventions. It never hurts for those who are participating in intervention, perhaps, who witnessed them, to do some reflecting as well. Their warning can often serve as a warning for us. And when Israel gets it wrong, when Judah gets it wrong, never a bad thing for Christians to sit there and go, ooh, do we do that? Are there any areas of complacency or presumption that we've let settle in, ways that we treat grace like it's a cheap thing, where we take God's kindness for granted? Are there any areas where we turn a deaf ear to God's word and pretend we haven't heard it? Are there areas where we're not humble enough to be corrected by it, but wave our fist at it, or just say we don't like it? Well, let's make sure we listen in now. Because the next sentence in Jeremiah 7 should shake us awake from any complacent slumber we might have. Now, I'm going to say something really important about these words later in the sermon. But for the moment, let's just hear them for the tragic resolve that's contained within it. Verse 16. God, speaking to Jeremiah, says, So do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead me with me, for I will not listen to you. You know, back in Genesis, Abraham repeatedly pleaded for the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said to the Lord, if there are 50 righteous people down there, will you spare them? And the Lord says, all right, for 50 righteous people, I'll do it. Okay, Abraham says, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? It goes all the way down to 10. Each time the Lord says, for that many, I'll do it. For that many, I'll do it. So do you see how tragic that now with his own people, he says to Jeremiah, don't even ask. Don't even start. Don't intercede. Don't plead for them. They are now on their own. There will be no mediation from a godly advocate whose righteousness I will accept on their behalf and so relent. I'm not going to do it. They either repent or they will fall because they are hardened in their rebellion. And it's all of them. Don't you see their idolatry, God says, is a family activity now. The worship of false gods is passed on from generation to generation. Verse 17, do you not see what they're doing? In the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, can you hear the exasperation in what God has to say? He's going, I can't believe this. He says, the children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. 
They're provoking me. Can't you see this, Jeremiah? The Queen of Heaven was a title for Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of war and of fertility of crops, animals and people. And so the family would gather together and make cakes with the produce of the land that God had provided for them and then they would make these cakes, stamp them with the image of Ishtar and offer it as a sacrifice to her as tribute. And they did this as well as presenting offerings to other gods. Men, women, children, all a party to it. Instead of, you see what had happened? Instead of passing on the worship of the Lord to their children and to generation after generation, instead of making that central to family life as they were commanded to do in Deuteronomy, whole families were instead having idolatry and false worship ingrained in them from birth. Do you know, God cares about the faith of families, not just individuals. Faith begins at home. Idolatry can be modelled and passed on as easily now as it could then. And so can the love of God. Which will it be for you and your family? You know, Christian parents, Christian grandparents, Christian uncles aunties, cousins, we have an important role in the faith of the people that we love. Let me ask a couple of questions. Do do the members of your family ever see you picking up a Bible and reading it? Or are they more likely to see you devouring a shopping catalogue or researching house prices and holidays? Do they witness you seeking first the kingdom of God during the week or is that only something they get to see on some Sundays? In other words, who or what would your family say you are devoted to? God wants his people to teach their children and their children's children about him. To love God and to keep his commandments, to love our neighbours as ourselves, to know his ways, to grow godly habits. What's happening in your home? What habits, attitudes and priorities might your loved ones witness and then repeat because you've modelled it to them? Which of the things you do... I expect it'll be a mix... Which of these are modelling faith to them? And which might be modelling disobedience or even idolatry? What's, what's something that we perhaps need to reform? Or you specifically need to reform? Back to the intervention. Judah's problem wasn't just their generational idolatry that earned God's judgement so did their generational deafness. Israel's problem was not a complete abandonment of worshipping the Lord. They still maintained, because they're walking past Jeremiah, aren't they? They still maintained all of the rituals and the routines for offering sacrifices. It's just that they also persisted with idolatry and disobedience. And that is why so often in Jeremiah and the other prophets, God describes their sin as being adulterous. Do you get that kind of 
metaphor. In other words, they're cheating on God and then coming back home to the temple as if everything was fine. And so as the worshippers walked past Jeremiah that day on their way to offer their sacrifices and say, see how much we worship you, Yahweh, Jeremiah would call out to them and say, hey, don't worry about sticking to the rules in there. Don't bother. Look at verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices. Eat the meat yourselves. Now, let me explain what's going on there. The, the, um, the burnt offering was the sacrifice for sin. Right? It was the sacrifice that atoned for things. It's the one that was there to pay for what you've done against God. And that sacrifice was to be burnt up completely because your sin was symbolically placed on that animal and so was symbolically, your sin was symbolically destroyed with the animal. Other sacrifices you could eat parts of, but not the burnt offerings. But Jeremiah says, nah, no point. Eat what you want, mix it all up. That's what you've been doing with the rest of your worship. Ignore me, doing whatever you want. Don't stick to the details here. You may as well mix it up here as well. And he points out that before God ever commanded anything about offerings that he actually called them to a far more fundamental demonstration of worship. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it might go well with you. It's not rocket science, is it, that God might actually expect people to treat him like he's God? That God might actually want people to listen to him and do what he says. And it's not like what he says is unreasonable either. To love and reverence him as the God who made you and to love and respect others that he's made in his image. Is that that unreasonable? It's not unreasonable for him to say, I am God, so I'm the one who defines right and wrong and, and you're not. Is God unjust or unfair to expect people to honour that? whoever they are? Is it unreasonable that he might get angry when his creatures to whom he's given everything reject him and show contempt for him? But from the beginning of their nation, God's own people, who knew him better than anyone, had turned a deafness to his commands into an art form. Verse 24, but they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts and they went backward and not forward. And from the time your ancestors left Egypt up until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they didn't listen to me and they didn't pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Oh, and guess what, Jeremiah, verse 27, when you tell them all of this, they won't listen to you. There you go. That's my people. (laughs) Did God have a right to be angry with Judah? Well, if Judah's idolatry and if Judah's refusal to listen isn't considered worthy enough of God's wrath, then maybe setting up idols in the temple itself and maybe burning your own children to death might seal the deal. Verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command and nor did it enter 
my mind. And now God's wrath at this peak wickedness is truly unveiled. Verse 32, so beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people won't call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hanon, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there's no more room. And then the carcasses of the people will become food for the birds and the wild animals and there'll be no one to frighten them away. And I'll bring an end to the sound of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. And in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we even read that this judgment upon this generation will even endure beyond death. The people themselves will be dead offerings uncovered and bared before the gods of the stars and the heavens and the sun and the moon that they'd worshipped. Do you know the valley of Ben-Hinnom would later be the place that the people of Jerusalem would use to burn their rubbish and they renamed Gehenna. And Jesus would use that valley with its history of burning and horror as a metaphor for hell. People don't like, see what I mean by hard word, (laughs) right? People don't like being told that they're wrong. I don't like being told that I'm wrong. I suspect you don't like to be told that you're wrong. We don't like to be told that we'll be held to account. And also it's true that not everyone responds to interventions. Judah didn't hear. If, as it is likely, this sermon is the one that's referred to in chapter 26. Then they seized Jeremiah afterward with the intention of killing him. They didn't like it at all. But God had every right to judge the sin of his people, didn't he? And they had earned every last drop of it. And the punishment fit the crime. That's justice. How could God see all of this and be treated this way and not hold them to account? It's inconceivable. Do you know the amazing thing? This is one of, one of my pet hates, is when people talk about the God of the Old Testament as if he is a cruel God who is warlike and vengeful. How long did it take for him to get to this point? It's the amazing thing is actually how reluctant and slow to judge God actually was. Hundreds and hundreds Of years he put up with this. Repeated warnings from the prophets, repeated rebukes, and repeated acts of salvation when they called to him and said, we're sorry. They didn't respond to rebuke and they didn't respond to grace. This scene with Jeremiah is a scene, you know, that gets repeated 600 years later. Jesus comes to the temple, the one that got remade after the one that would soon get destroyed that you'll read about, full of money changes, And he quotes Jeremiah and says, guess what? Still a den of robbers. And he too prophesies its destruction, telling his disciples that not one stone is going to remain upon another because Israel hadn't changed. But you know what? They're not special in that regard, are they? Sin was no more ingrained in them than it is in us. And Paul writes in that passage from Romans that was read by Antoine earlier, It's a passage that reminds us that God is rightly angry at all sin and everyone is guilty of it. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
We've all exchanged the truth of God for lies. We've all failed to glorify him as God or give thanks that he's, that give him the thanks he's due. And instead, we've given that glory and honour to other things, created things, idols of our own imagining. And whether we grew up in a religious home or not, we know what right and wrong is. We know it enough to point the finger at other people when they do it, when we do the same things ourselves. And these are not rare. Let's be real. They're not exceptional. They're not once in a blue moon failings. I did sin in... 2016. They're ingrained. They're habitual. And yes, we catch it from our parents and we pass it on to our kids. We model it. So here's the intervention for us. Should God not be angry at my sin and at yours? Should God not hold me to account for it? Should he not hold you to account for it? Is it not worthy of punishment? The answer is he is angry at sin and he will judge and to do so will be 100% just and right. But here is the majestic truth of the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is where I want to remind us of that earlier verse in Jeremiah. Unlike that day with Jeremiah, for us there is someone who always intercedes. Whose pleas on our behalf, God readily and continually and joyously listens to. The perfect saviour who bore all the anger and wrath that rightly is directed to every single one of us and bore it for us when he took our punishment and died in our place on the cross. The one whose cleansing work is so thorough and so complete, how about this, that though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Now, is that offensive to you? Or is it the best news you've ever heard? Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Maybe what we'll do now is the band's going to come up and we're going to sing. But let's just sit here in a moment and maybe in quiet prayer. Reflect on your life and rejoice in the God who has loved you so much.